Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. We start with the surge in COVID cases and the view from the front lines of healthcare. Hospital beds filling up with COVID patients. Check out what they're doing in the province of Quebec. This week, they announced that anti-vax tax. Wow, so controversial. The Quebec government saying unvaccinated people are filling up hospital beds. Therefore, they will charge a health care fee for people who are unvaccinated in that province. Here is the Quebec Premier, Francois Legault, making that announcement earlier this week. The vaccine is the key to fight the virus. This is why we're looking uh, for a an health contribution for adults who refuse to be vaccinated for non-medical reasons. Those who refuse to receive their first dose in the coming weeks will have to pay a new health contribution. How much will that new health contribution be? Well, they haven't said yet. They have said it will be significant. All right, let's discuss now with my guest, Dr. Kevin McLeod. I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. He's an internal medicine specialist at Lionsgate Hospital, does a lot of work in the COVID ward, and it's great to have him back. Dr. McLeod, thank you for coming on today. Mike, thanks for having me. It's always fun. I appreciate it a lot. I remember the last time we talked, we talked about how healthcare workers feel when they have to treat patients they know are are unvaccinated. And I, I recall you saying that it's kind of a frustrating thing to go through, but hey, people are sick. They show up in hospital. They get health care, right? Whether they're unvaccinated or not. People are treated the same, correct? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, everybody's going to get treated the same. And, and I think we sort of have this misnomer now that or this, this wrong idea that this group of people who are not vaccinated are kind of a, a homogeneous group. They're not. I mean, there's there's definitely the hardcore people protesting in front of hospitals that you just want to strangle because they're just out to lunch. But that's not the majority, right? You have a lot of patients who have maybe major mental health problems. You know, if I have somebody come into my office who is absolutely convinced that the vaccine contains a tracking device and, you know, they're here in my office to use my Wi-Fi because the Wi-Fi in their house is bugged, how am I going to convince that person to get vaccinated, right? You know, yeah. there, there are some major challenges that are, are not as straightforward as you'll see in one-liners and absolutely we want everybody vaccinated are we going to get to 100 percent? no um but we're getting pretty close and and um you know i i think it, it is going in the right direction for yeah sure. though the vaccination rate is very high in british columbia we continue to see numbers that show a disproportionate number of unvaccinated people in hospital is that your is that your experience on the front lines? Are you seeing, uh, you know, among the people in hospital, are, are a lot of them unvaccinated? Yes and no. So, you know, it's sort of 50-50. Certainly the people yeah. going to the ICU are typically unvaccinated. Um, you know, people coming in to, you know, a more general ward, many of them are vaccinated. You know, the vaccine is not perfect, right? I mean, it's very right. good at reducing the risk of serious illness. But there are some people who really are on 
on the edge. And, you know, I had a, a colleague say something I thought was quite funny the other day. They said, you know, there's this huge collection of people in, in the community. They're really, and anybody with elderly parents will know this, you know, they're one failed bowel movement away from landing in a hospital, right? Like they're right on the edge and it doesn't take a lot to tip them over. The, the positive piece um, you know, we are seeing, and I do not like the term mild because, you know, COVID affects people in pretty severe ways, but Omicron does seem to be less virulent is probably the right term. So right. people coming into hospital, their length of stays are less, you know, they're not as sick. Yes, there are outliers who still get very sick, but in general, people seem to be doing a little bit better. Like I remember when we first started this a couple of years ago, you know, patients would come in, they'd be in the hospital for two weeks. They were really sick. You know, some of these people who are vaccinated, especially if they're elderly and they've been boosted, you know, they may be coming into hospital for one to two days. It's very, very different when you see outbreaks in care homes. And we're going to have outbreaks in every single care home and every single hospital because this is so transmissible. But we don't see the same death that we had, right? And, yeah. and God, when we had outbreaks in the early days, it was brutal. Like pe- people that shouldn't have died, died. But we're not seeing that now. Many people in these outbreaks, they don't even know they have COVID. You know, we're picking them up because we're screening them. So it's, it's a different kind of stage of this pandemic. But certainly what you see out there in the media and online and Twitter and these sorts of things, you know, I think creates a lot of fear and people maybe have the, the wrong idea about what's actually going on. I think it's really important what you just outlined there because there are some reasons for hope and optimism here that uh, maybe things are changing here uh, in the year ahead. My guest is Dr. Kevin McLeod, Lionsgate Hospital. So, Kevin, let me ask you about what Quebec is doing. You know, they call it the anti-vax tax. You heard the Quebec Premier there call it a health care contribution that they will levy on people who are unvaccinated in British Columbia. What do you think of that approach? Or I mean, in to be Quebec, honest, that is. I, I see the pros and cons of it, but I'm not in favor of it for a few reasons. You, you know, yes, I want everybody vaccinated, but you, you are sort of imposing a healthcare decision on somebody. Um, you know, if I treat somebody with with a heart attack, I mean, there are patients who decide they don't want to take the pills I prescribe. Well, should they be taxed because they're more likely to land back in hospital? And the mm-hmm. argument that's been made by a lot of people is, yeah, yeah but. You don't spread around a heart attack. And they're right. But when we look at Omicron, the people who are vaccinated versus the people who are unvaccinated, yes, if you're unvaccinated, you're a little bit more likely to spread it. But it's not like the original and other variants, right? It's spreading so quickly that we can't really blame unvaccinated people for spreading it around. Now, we can blame unvaccinated people for being way more likely to land in hospital, way more likely to use ICU resources. But I think we just have to be really clear why we want to impose that. Because people have this idea that we want to impose it so we get everybody vaccinated so we stop the spread. But that isn't really why they're they're doing it. And I do worry that some of it is to to kind of cause a deflection, right? Because if if you ask the public... How many people do you think are in hospital right now with COVID? They're going to say, well, they're overwhelmed. It's 30% of people. Oh, my God, it's nuts. It's actually about five, less than 5% of all the patients that we have in hospital in BC have COVID. And so what the real question has to be is, why do we have such a capacity problem that you throw 5% of people into the mix and the whole system collapses, right? Like, that's really what we should be talking about. But instead, we're talking about a vaccination tax that probably is never going to go through or really get charged anyways, right? 
I, I think you may be right. First of all, I think it's potentially illegal under the Canada Health Act, and there are, there are already threats of a legal challenge uh, of this this anti-vax measure in, in Quebec. And I says I have a feeling that if this gets in front of a judge, it may be it may be uh, put down. It may be uh, put away. But we'll, we'll see. For what, sure, I, yeah. I think it will for sure. And but but that isn't the goal of it, right? Like, I don't no. think they're. And I don't want to sound cynical, but they're not putting this out there to actually necessarily enforce it by saying it a bunch of people go get vaccinated because they get worried um and you know like it also deflects from some of the other political problems going on i think it's a i think it's a great point now the quebec health minister said that well actually it is working because we had seven thousand people sign up for their first dose in quebec after they made this announcement and that was like a big number in the last couple of months so they say it's actually working but I like the point you made about someone who refuses to take heart care medication because, or what about someone who's a heavy smoker and ends up in hospital with cancer or a heavy drinker and they've got liver problems or, or they break their legs skydiving? You know, these are all personal decisions that people have made to smoke or to drink or to jump out of an airplane. And we're not turning around to them and saying, we're sending you a bill for your health care. Right. Well, no, exactly right. And, and people think, oh, but that's pretty uncommon. A lot of people don't want to take the medications. And I understand that. You know, we, we all come from different backgrounds and have different philosophies about how we want to look after ourselves. You know, a lot of people land in hospital because they weren't compliant with something. And it, it does utilize a lot of resources. Right. I mean, you, you could make the case, you know, heart disease, stroke, big killer, you know, statins some controversy but overall this class of medication really helps people well what if we said everybody has to take a statin out there to reduce the risk of heart disease and stroke because that's going to protect our hospitals and if you don't want to take that pill you have to pay a tax yeah it's it's sort of the same thing with the vaccine and i know people say no no with the vaccine like that's different they're spreading it around but the people who are vaccinated are also now with omicron because it's different are also spreading it around right and so yeah, so yeah. that's where I, I have a little bit of a problem with it. Let me ask you real I'm quick. I'm really pro-vaccine. Like, I oh, want I everybody vaccinated. So. Yeah, no, I think you're raising some great points. Let me ask you real quickly about uh, Vancouver Coastal Health. I was shocked when I saw this story. Vancouver Coastal Health saying that some people who don't want to get vaccinated themselves have been going down to the downtown east side. And this is unbelievable. Paying homeless people to go and get the shots for them. They go basically fake another person's identity take their ID, their healthcare number, go and get the vaccine. So they will have a vaccine card, but they haven't taken the vaccine. They've got, they paid a homeless person to do it. They say a homeless person in the neighborhood was paid $200 to go and get vaccinated for somebody else. That's, I mean, how low can you go? I mean, it, that, that is so low, you, you know, and this is probably politically incorrect to say, but if there ever was a time to beat somebody with a rubber hose in public, that's the guy. I mean, come on, right? I mean, this is nuts. Like, who does this, right? I mean, that's sociopathic behavior, um, it, you know, and, and I think, I'm not a big fan of cancel culture, but when, if, if those names come out, I mean, what employer is going to keep that person around? What, that person is going to be absolutely ostracized yeah. from society because if somebody's paying that money, it's clearly somebody who has some needs, you know? I'm I mean, real. that I'm person real. should be packing their stuff up right now and getting out of town because it's going to be a rough time for them, as it should be. I agree with you. Dr. McLeod, thank you for your work on the front lines in the healthcare system, and thanks for coming on today. Thanks, Mike. 
All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk taxes now, specifically local municipal taxes, local property taxes going up this year in many cities. Let's take a look at the city of Vancouver here. Vancouver taxpayers looking at an increase of 6.35% local taxes. That's significant, in my opinion. Of course, you got your climate change levies and taxes going on in the city of Vancouver. You've got to pay... 25 cents now for your paper cup when you get a cup of coffee in the city of vancouver how much are taxes going up where you live are you getting good value for your tax dollars let's discuss now with my guest brad west mayor of port coquitlam and i'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show mayor west thank you for coming on today thanks for having me mike okay how much are taxes going up in port coquitlam this year so this year we're looking at an increase of 2.8%, which also includes uh, 1% for infrastructure renewal. We have 1% we put uh, specifically aside to renew uh, critical infrastructure in the city. Uh, and, and actually, quite honestly, that, that's a little bit on the higher side for Port Coquitlam over the last number of years. And, and part of it is because there's a, a number of inflationary costs that are uh, beyond the municipality's control, and we're dealing with those like other businesses, but uh, still very modest compared to the rest of the region. And in yeah. fact, one of the statistics that just came out that I think demonstrates the hard work and focus we've brought in POCO is that in the last five years, property taxes have increased just over 5% in Port Coquitlam in the last five years. The Metro Vancouver average well over 15%, so three times greater than what we've seen in our city. Okay, okay. so the, the increase that you're looking at this year, what did you say it was, 2.8? That's right. 2.8. How does that compare to other other municipalities, say in Metro Vancouver? Is that the lowest or among the lowest? Or? Oh, it's, it, it's going to be, a lot of them are finalizing it, but it will be amongst the lowest, if not the lowest uh, yeah. in the region. And like, look, certainly there are things that are outside of municipalities' control you deal with, costs that are inflationary contractual things for instance the federal government awarded rcmp officers a significant wage increase because uh, rcmp officers are now unionized uh, certainly do not begrudge uh, paying our police what they're worth but the federal government decides what the wage increase is going to be and then they hand the bill to the municipality it's not optional. There's no getting away yeah. from it. So that's one of the things that you have to deal with. But there's, there's a lot of other things that cities do have discretion over. And I think where you see very high increases in property taxes, it's because those cities are straying away from the core responsibilities of the municipality to get into a whole nother level of government's responsibility. Okay, can you give me some examples of that? I mean, I don't expect you to start bashing your fellow mayors here too much. No, but, absolutely. You know. Well, why don't I talk about what we've done in Port Coquitlam? So okay. we've, re we've kept a laser-like focus on the basic responsibilities of the municipality. We, I, I think we all learned fairly quickly how important that was over the last couple of weeks with respect to snow removal. Uh, yeah. We don't skimp out on snow removal. We make sure that we budget that appropriately. And so when we do have snow removal, we have all the resources of the city deployed. And I think we have the best snow removal in the entire Metro Vancouver region. The other thing that we really do is start with a position of 
respect for taxpayer money. And that has been an attitude that has been taken up throughout our entire organization. So how does that express itself? Well, for instance, look at this. When cities go and borrow money to do major projects, you have opportunities over the life of that project to refinance. And quite often, you're able to refinance at a lower interest rate. And so that happened in Port Coquitlam not that long ago. One of our major infrastructure projects that we borrowed for, it was uh, in excess of $100 million. We were able to, when our term was up, we refinanced. We did so at a lower interest rate. That meant a significant savings to the municipality. What do you do with that money, Mike? That becomes a decision, you know, and the decision we make in our city is to return that money to the people it belongs to, which is to our taxpayers. In many sure. other places, when that happens, the, the attitude is, oh, this is free money, and it goes towards a pet project, it goes towards uh, things that I believe would be a, of dubious value to the residents uh, and the municipality. Okay. Uh, just okay. to, sorry, go ahead. Speak, speaking of dubious, I'm, I'm speaking of uh, Port Coquitlam Mayor Brad West. Now, speaking of dubious spending and taxing decisions, so let, let me ask you this. Like, how much is your climate change tax in Poco? Do you have one? We don't have one. Mike. Okay, you don't have a climate change tax. How much do you charge for a paper cup for if you go to a Starbucks in Poco? How much is that? Don't charge for that either. You don't you charge to, for you, that you, either. You, you, when you when you got that craving for McDonald's, come to Poco. <laughs> okay, so uh, like if, you know, it just you know, but the reality is this this stuff does add up, and I think people are are sick and tired of being nickeled and dimed. I, I have always contended that people do not mind paying taxes when they know that the money that they're handing over to to City Hall or to any level of government is being spent responsibly, is being yeah. spent wisely, and is being spent on things that actually make a difference. So much of this is just the facade of doing something. Like, oh, well, you know, we're, we're charging for, uh, for a, a takeout bag from a fast food restaurant, and, you know, doesn't that make us so green? Well, what is it really achieving? You know, it's a bit of a farce, to be quite honest. Well, um, if uh, Vancouver Mayor Kennedy Stewart or some of his, one of his councillors was here right now, they might say, hey, we're in an existential climate change crisis here in the city. I mean, we just had a storm last week that cracked up the seawall. So, you know, we've got to pay for this stuff somehow. There, there's a bill to be paid because of climate change. So that's why we're going to hit you with a climate change levy. That's why we're going to charge you for your paper bag. That's why we're going to charge you for your plastic cup of coffee. That's well, that's why we're doing it. In in our city, that's part of what we pay for out of people's property taxes. So uh, we are planting more trees ever than in in the history of our municipality because we know that you know that's one of the things that we can do to reduce our carbon footprint. We're trying to make it easier for people to get around uh, by by foot, by by bike. Uh, in, in ways that make sense. Um, you know, I, I think for most of you, are going to be hard-pressed to, to connect the dots or to make the connection that, you know, being nickel and dime for a takeout bag from a fast food restaurant 
yeah. uh, is somehow going to turn back the tide of climate change. Yeah, so on that point, you know, I had a listener this morning actually sent me an email. He took a photo of a scan of his uh, his bill when he, he got a takeout burger for lunch yesterday, and he was fuming about this 25-cent line item for the bag, you know, right. like... And well, people, and, and it's like twenty five cents is not going to break anybody. But sure, do you think that, like, let's let's talk about affordability right now, for example, especially in this city, in this region, it's so expensive to live here. One of the most expensive places in North, in in the country, if not North America, the world. And you know, when people get take a look, they go and buy a cup of coffee, and they go, "Oh man, are you kidding me?" Like the city's now charging me twenty five cents for my cup, it, my it, bag. It, like, it, what kind of impact does that have? It's just the kind of slow, crushing grind on working and middle-class people, who many of who are, are hanging on by their fingertips. We are seeing yeah. our standard of living slowly erode. And it doesn't come in big, one big swoop where all of a sudden, uh, you know, you, you just you, you find yourself underwater. But it, it is this slow, chipping away, uh, and, and you see it, you know, in terms of inflation and what that's doing. And also you see it with the introduction in, of more and more of these user fees. Uh, and, and it is the, the 25 cents here, the, the buck here. Uh, you know, it, it, in our city, for instance, there's no pay parking. Wow. People don't mm. pay for parking in our city. You know, it, in some places, it is becoming so expensive to park. And the idea of all of this is that, and this is where there's such a lack of honesty. People won't actually say what they're intending. What they're intending to do is to make it too expensive for regular working and middle-class people to be able to do those things. So if we want to exasperate the challenges that the vast majority of the people of our region are already feeling financially and create this, uh, you know, two-tier region where, uh, you know, if you're wealthy, you can drive, you can park, you can go and get your takeout food, you can do all these things because the cost doesn't really matter to you. Sure. Uh, and then everyone else, you know, I guess is hooped. Right, sure, because it's kind of a, it's a regressive tax at the end of the day in a lot of ways. While I have you here, let me ask, get your take on this. We've talked in the past about affordable housing. And we talked a lot this week on the show about this UBC report that came out recommending a tax on homes, an annual tax. If your home is worth more than $1 million, put a new tax on that every year. You'd have to pay it. Use that money to build affordable housing. You on board with that? No, I'm not. First off, almost every home in the Metro Vancouver region is over a million dollars. That's the first thing. So you're going to capture, you know, just about every uh, type of housing that someone might own. Uh, again, here, I, I think there's a real disconnect. Now, look, it may be different in other places, but I can tell you in the city of Port Coquitlam, about 80% of people own their home. And mm. they're not all rich, by the way. <laughs> a lot of them, like myself, have a huge mortgage. Yeah. And that mortgage is expensive every time, every month that it has to be paid. And so, you know, for, uh, again, a lot of working uh, middle-class people in a community like ours, they do own, they own their home, but they're paying 
paying big mortgages, uh, and that home may end up being you know a, a okay. big part of retirement later on. So um, look, the reality is is that uh, we're already uh, paying significant amounts of money in income tax, uh, and I think that that is the place where uh, non-market affordable housing um, uh, funded by the government uh, in partnership with nonprofits and, and developers and municipalities. I mean, that to me is the avenue, and okay. that's what we've done in our city. Mayor West, thank you for coming on today. appreciate your thoughts. Thanks for having me, Mike. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the deadly heat dome that hit British Columbia last June. One of the most devastating impacts of that historic heat wave, of course, occurred in the village of Lytton, British Columbia, which burned to the ground in the heat dome, displacing the residents there. We talked about this earlier this week on the show, including the slow pace of recovery and rebuilding in the village of Lytton. Have a listen to this. This is a Lytton resident, Britannia Glasgow, who was my guest on the show earlier this week. She said people there feel forgotten. Have a listen to what she had to say to me. I've heard more than one person tell me that they think that no one cares about the people here. It breaks my heart because I love Lytton and I love the people here, and it just seems like we all just want to be together. We want something to be done. We want to be heard. We want to be seen. We want some sort of direction to come in, someone to come in and say, hey, okay, this is the plan for 2022. This is what we're going to be doing. This is what's going to be done. This is what we're bringing in. It just seems like nobody is saying anything like that. Okay, Britannia Glasgow, Lytton resident. She was my guest on the show earlier this week about the slow pace of rebuilding the village that burned to the ground last year let's check in with mike farnworth now bc's minister of public safety and a solicitor general the minister responsible on this file appreciate his time today minister thank you for coming on today my pleasure minister when you listen to that from britannia glasgow a resident of Lytton, saying that she feels like no one cares she feels like they've been forgotten in this community what goes through your mind what do you think when you hear that no it it, it is um it, it is obviously uh, you the frustration, you totally understand the frustration. I mean, it was a, a terrible traumatic event that happened, and, and you totally get that people want things to get back to normal as quickly as possible. And, and I think all of us do. And, and I guess the key thing I want to say is Lytton is not forgotten. Lytton is very much uh, on the minds of, uh, of, of government at, uh, at all levels, whether it's the provincial, federal, uh, or the regional. Uh, and we want to get Lytton back up and built, uh, rebuilt as quickly as possible. And what is the timeline for that? Because one of the things we heard from Britannia on the show this week is that even the burned-out debris in the in the town has not been cleared away yet, and it's now it's covered in snow. Yeah, yeah. No. Well, there's a there's a number of complex issues around Lytton. Uh, one that you know there was the the, the the almost complete destruction of the community, uh, and the debris removal is obviously a critical priority. There's insured houses and uninsured houses, and what the province has indicated is that we will be ensuring that that debris is is removed. Uh, there's been a lot of work done already in terms of the coordination with the Thompson-Nicola Regional District in terms of getting uh, the debris to be removed. Um, it is there, were, there is a lot of hazardous material there. Now, one of the issues that has impacted and hopefully uh, will, be, will be changing very quickly uh, was the atmospheric river and the, uh, the, the damage that was done on Highway 1, uh, which wow. 
you know, blocked access. Uh, with the reopening of that highway, which um, is, you know, uh, very shortly, uh, that is going to help um, significantly in terms of expediting the ability to get that debris removed. Right. Talking about rebuilding Lytton with Solicitor General Mike Farnworth, like you mentioned that the highway access to the, the village is, is still impeded, right? Like you can't get in there on Highway 1. Is that still the case? Well, the, the, the challenge is, is you can get into Lytton, but in terms of the removal of the debris, because it's hazardous material and there's so much of it and it's removed in large, it, 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 is the only other way is Highway 12, which has load restrictions on it. Uh, and so there's, a, there's, there's some real challenges there. But with the opening of Highway 1, that will definitely, that will definitely uh, uh, assist uh, in, in getting things uh, moving. The other thing that's taken place, which is also important, is a number of the civic facilities um, are going to be coming back. So, for example, uh, the RCMP will be uh, uh, are planning to, to put their, uh, their detachment uh, in, the, in the former uh, health uh, center in Lytton. Uh, they've posted a uh, constable on a three-year posting in Lytton. Uh, the Interior Health Authority is going to be reopening the health center. So there's a doctor now is, is in the community. They'll be, they're operating currently out of the First Nations Health Center. Um, Canada Post has reinstated um, postal service uh, to the community. Uh, but the critical area, of course, is going to be in terms of the support that the local government requires, and the province has given a million dollars uh, grant for them to not only support uh, their efforts in terms of the local economy, but more importantly, the operational activities in Lytton. So that means they're able to have the staff they need to, to support the, uh, the rebuilding process. Yeah, you mentioned earlier that some of the homes that burned down there, some of them were insured, other properties were not insured. How does that affect the recovery and the rebuilding here? Like if someone's home or property burned and they had no insurance, do they get any help? Or are they getting any help from the province? That's one of the areas where the province is actively working right now with the, uh, the community and looking at this question uh, of, of, of the uninsured properties on a broader basis. Um, so uh, we, we have an understanding of how many properties uh, are insured um, and then we've also been working with the federal government because there's, there's, the federal government has got responsibility in terms of the First Nations housing that's on reserve. At the same time, they've indicated that they will be uh, supporting the rebuilding for houses, uh, First Nations off reserve in the community. And we're working in terms of, okay, what's the full scope of the damage and, is, and how, how is the best way to, uh, to assist in the rebuilding of, 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 those, uh, of those people's houses. Right. Let me play a clip here for you from Liberal MLA Jackie Taggart, who represents the riding where Lytton is located. She's been very critical of what she believes is the slow pace of rebuilding and recovery and helping people in the, in the town. And here's what she had to say to me earlier this week on the show, and I'll get your thoughts. Liberal MLA Jackie Taggart here. I think the huge gap is the leadership from government. Um, we have a 600-page environmental report that came out um, assessing, um, you know, hazardous waste, etc. What is the government doing to mitigate that and to provide funding in order to do that so that we can start moving debris the minute the snow is gone. Okay, Liberal MLA Jackie Taggart there. She represents the uh, village of Lytton. Minister, how do you answer her question there? She talked about the report on 
hazardous materials, uh, burned materials on the ground in the village, and you, you briefly touched on that earlier. She's wondering about when, this, when is this stuff going to be removed? Well, as I, as I, I just mentioned a moment ago, uh, a lot of the work in terms of the removal of that material has already taken place and is already underway uh, with the, uh, the Thompson-Nicola Regional District. Uh, one of the key issues, of course, as I said, was that, uh, the, uh, the, the closure of, of Highway 1. Uh, but we've also been very clear now um, that uh, the province will be paying that cost. Um, so there's, uh, you know, so um, to remove uh, the debris and the material, uh, and so the province is paying for that cost. So you know that commitment has been there. It's uh, it's not a question of of are we? We have said yes, we are. In the same way that we have been providing supports to the community, um, as I said, the uh, the million dollar grant so that the the village of Lytton can actually function. Uh, at the same time, there's been significant resources, government resources, uh, provided to the community, uh, not only to provide direct provincial supports in terms of uh, the supports that, that people need who have been uh, evacuated and are living in, in, uh, in a, uh, but also in terms of the safe uh, work and uh, reentry into the community, um, staff assigned to, uh, to assist them in, the, uh, in, in, in terms of recovery of their operations center, uh, assisting them in being able to get in a, uh, a new um, um, chief administrative officer uh, with experience in recovery in communities. So the province has been there working very closely with uh, the uh, the community of Lytton and will continue to do so. Speaking to Public Safety Minister Mike Farnworth, we were talking about the village of Lytton uh, rebuilding the village after it burned down uh, last year. One of the other things that uh, Britannia Glasgow, the Lytton resident, said to me earlier this week, Minister, was you know, she had heard that some people have been told or they've received some indication that it, the rebuilding process is going to take a long time and that some people might not be able to begin rebuilding a home until perhaps in the year 2023, not even this year, but going into next year. And there have been some complaints that if the rebuilding process is going to be that slow, could there be problems with insurance coverage? Because Jackie Taggart, the Liberal MLA, your colleague in the legislature there said, well, a lot of insurance policies will say, look, we expect a rebuilding plan to begin within two years of the damage to a home. Your thoughts? The, I don't know where the, uh, the, the 2023 has come from. Um, it's simply not something uh, that we are anticipating whatsoever. Uh, my expectation is, is with, the degree, with the debris removal, um, once that's taken place, uh, there is work around um, um, with, with First Nations on the archaeological stuff that re- I want, we want to see rebuilding take place as quickly as possible um, starting this year. Uh, okay. there's, no one is saying that uh, you're going to have to wait until 2023. Okay, Minister, when you do begin rebuilding this, this village, will it have to be built back in, in a different fashion or would you still be using the same provincial building code here to build back in this community or or will this be a, a village or a town a community that's going to be rebuilt according to new standards so it potentially withstands future climate challenges well i think one of the things that we want to see happen obviously is 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 for communities to be resilient and to be able to build back better uh, but the rebuilding is also determined uh, by the local community themselves 
in terms of how they want to rebuild back and what their priorities are. But obviously, the ability to fire smart communities, for example, is obviously uh, is, is important. Uh, and there are ways in which the province can build, particularly when it comes to civic infrastructure, uh, in terms of, you know, like the, the, the police station, the health center, um, the roads, those kinds of things, to ensure that in terms of the, 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 that civic infrastructure that we build back, uh, that we do build, in fact, build back better and that but, it's more resilient. Minister, last question for you. As the Minister of Public Safety, the atmospheric river, some of the rain that we're seeing right now, it doesn't seem to be as maybe as bad as we thought it was maybe earlier in the week. Is there any sort of localized flooding you're concerned about right now in terms of and the weather right now? Um, well, obviously, we, uh, you know, we rely on the information that we receive uh, from communities around the province. Uh, but so far, from what we've seen on uh, the reports, I mean, obviously, the, you know, there were the, uh, the slides on, on Highway 1, and, and, and there was an expectation in that, and so that the, 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 uh, the, the Ministry of Transportation Highways uh, shut that down, uh, is that it does not seem to have, uh, uh, there does not seem to have been uh, um, um, significant or, or much localized flooding uh, at this point, and it seems that the worst of the weather is, is past us. Minister, thank you for your time today. Appreciate it. My, my pleasure. All right, welcome back to the show. Are you in the market for a used vehicle? A lot of people are looking for a great deal on a great used car or truck, but demand is up, supply is restricted, prices are up, no surprise there. We're going to talk about that vehicle market right now. And think about this now. Which used vehicle is the most in demand? In Canada and also right here in British Columbia, which vehicle is the most sought after? Let's talk about that now with my guest, Jody Lai. Jody is the editor-in-chief at autotrader.ca. Jody, it's nice to have you on again. Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me back. Thank you for doing this. And by the, I got to say, you guys do an awesome job at Auto Trader. I was just um, checking the site out the other day because I was thinking about maybe actually a new used vehicle in the new year. And the site's great. I mean, you can search it every which way. It's got a ton of vehicles on there. Like, how many vehicles are f- for sale on there in Auto Trader right now? Um, so right now we have hundreds of thousands of listings. I'm not sure of the exact number, but uh, yeah. you might not know that we also have new vehicles and used vehicles. Right. Yes. Yes. I have seen the new vehicles on there too. I, I remember when I was shopping for my first used car a long time ago. I think I went to the corner store and I bought a print copy of the Auto Trader, and and now it's online. And so it's a, it's been an amazing transition. So Jody, let me ask you this: um, Let's put the, the listeners out of their curiosity here. The number one sought-after vehicle on Auto Trader. If we if you take a look at the two thousand and uh, two thousand and twenty-one most searched vehicles on Auto Trader, what was number one last year? Uh, the number one top search vehicle last year on the Auto Trader Marketplace was the Ford F-150, and it was the same in BC as well. The Ford F-150 truck, that always seems to be number one. It's true, and I'm not surprised it's on there. It's been the top of that list since we've been tracking this data for like seven years. It's also, you know, Canada's most popular selling vehicle, and it's been that way for decades. So it's really no surprise to see it at the top of that list. Yeah, and people still love the trucks. I mean, you know, we often hear about, well, maybe people start downsizing their vehicles. But man, those pickup trucks, you still see them everywhere, and everyone still wants one, right? 
Yeah, it's true. We're actually seeing a trend of people looking to upsize their vehicles. So wow. that's what huh. we're seeing reflected in the list. That's what we see in, in all of our data is that people want bigger and bigger vehicles. Yeah. Okay. What about the other most searched vehicle models in, in British Columbia, if you run down the top five for us here? Sure. Next after the F-150 was the Porsche 911 and then the Ford Mustang. Uh, the number four was the Toyota RAV4. And then number five was the BMW 3 Series in BC. Okay, very interesting list. What is the market like out there right now? It seems like demand is up and supply is down. Is that true? Yeah, that's true. I think that has a lot to do with the microchip shortage. Like that's the thing on everyone's mind right now. And it means that demand for vehicles is high, supply is low, and that generally pushes prices a little bit higher um, but like we said before, there's still like hundreds of thousands of vehicles on the auto trader marketplace. And I would really urge shoppers um, not to panic because there are still cars out there. They might just have to be like a little bit more patient or travel a little bit farther to find the exact one they want. Okay. How much are prices up? Um, I don't have that data in front of me right now, so I can get back to you. Um, but they were up year over year. I just don't know the exact number right now. Yeah, but I mean, you know, demand is up, supply is down. I mean, it's basic economics, right? Price goes up. Yeah. Let's talk about, uh, you mentioned that microchip shortage. What is the status of that right now? Um, so we're optimistic. And so we're hearing that a lot of automakers are getting close to being at full capacity again. Um, and that means that, you know, pricing and inventory issues should level out. So we're really optimistic. Yeah, and what was like that global? Is that this is a global shortage here, and it's had implications for the vehicle markets all around the world with that shortage of microchips. Are they are they catching up to that to that demand for the for these microchips? Are they making more of them? I think so. Yeah. So one of the issues um, with automotive mar- uh, microchips in the first place was that they were a little bit older. And so um, the microchip manufacturers are really focusing on making newer model microchips for like, you know, those high end electronics and stuff like that. Um, and so now automakers are kind of catching up and they're starting to use those um, those newer microchips, which is which are the ones that are being produced. So I think in that way, they are they are catching up, which is good to see. All right. Speaking to Jody Lai, she is the editor-in-chief of autotrader.ca, talking about the most searched vehicles last year on Autotrader in British Columbia. Number one, the Ford F-150 truck. This always seems to be the number one vehicle in demand, and it still is once again. Yeah, last year, maybe probably will be in the year ahead. There, there's a lot of pressure on people to reduce driving jody and we see public policy trying to steer people onto public transit you know stop driving we've got a climate change crisis get people onto public transit instead what are you discovering on on that in terms of canadians views on public transit right now yeah great question so auto trader uh, did a survey in the beginning of covid and again like in november of last year and uh basically discovered that a lot of canadians still aren't super comfortable using public transit um, and ride sharing and so that's why car ownership has uh the interest in car ownership has really gone up um but something that we should mention is that like the interest in evs is also increasing a lot 
And so while um, a lot of governments governments are trying to get more Canadians onto public transit for the environment, um, that interest in EVs kind of tells us that, like, Canadians are ready. <laughs> yeah, let's talk about that. So EVs, electric vehicles, and that's something that our family's thinking about, too. Like, maybe our next vehicle should be an electric vehicle. And why not? With gas prices so high right now, we have a lot of people thinking about an electric vehicle. What are you seeing in terms of the, the trends on Auto Trader for people looking for an EV? Yeah, so you're not alone. So on the Auto Trader Marketplace, EV inventory increased by about 31% year over year. And we also did a lot of research to gauge interest and found that like 64% of people who we surveyed were open, were, um, open to, to buying an EV as their next vehicle. And so that'll be something that'll be really defining for 2022. So you're in a similar boat. Okay, how about um, luxury vehicles? Like you mentioned that top five of the most searched models in British Columbia. They got some luxury brands on there. Number two, the Porsche 911. Oh, man, I, I like that one too. Um, also, the BMW 3 Series. I guess more of the affordable BMW in there, number five. Like, Are people still looking at sort of luxury and comfort in, in vehicle choices in British Columbia right now? Yeah, in British Columbia, uh, I think it tied with Ontario for having the most amount of luxury cars on that top search list. Um, and so the other thing is that Auto Trader is a marketplace, right? So our job is to connect Canadians with cars. So we don't track sales and what people are searching for isn't necessarily what they're buying. Like, I don't know if you do this, but I'm on the Auto Trader app all the time, like looking for cars that I might buy when I win the lottery one day, if I'm curious. <laughs> and I think a lot of other people are doing the same thing. Yeah, no, it is kind of a fun site just to sort of hunt around on, even if you're not in the market, to see what's available, what the prices are, especially locally. Like when you mentioned earlier, you know, for people who are wondering about a new vehicle in 2022, they've heard about prices up, demand is up, supply is down. You're saying don't panic. Uh, do you expect what, what do you what sort of outlook do you see in the new year in terms of the, in terms of the vehicle market? I mean, we're, again, we're optimistic. I think as automakers start ramping up their production again, we're going to see inventory issues level out. But uh, it's going to be a huge year. There's a ton of really interesting new vehicles coming out. A lot of great um, EVs that kind of span across all different budgets and body styles. Um, like, this will be the first year Canadians will be able to buy a fully electric truck. Yeah. And you know that Canadians love their trucks. So I think that this shift will make EVs um, a lot more mainstream just by opening it up to that new body style. All right, we'll see how it goes in 2022. Jody, thank you for coming on today. Thanks for having me.